Well, beloved listeners, given the uh, the factual and the fictional connections between Charles Dickens and Australia, it's no surprise that we have uh, revisited the great man again and again over the decades. We've done stories on uh, Fagan in Tasmania, looked into the possibility that Miss Havisham might have been based on a, a Sydney socialite jilted at the altar, I and we've explored why uh, Dickens encouraged his younger son, Edward, to emigrate to Australia at the age of uh, 16. But in this program, we're heading off to London, the city that Dickens called his magic lantern, the place that fired his imagination and was for the setting of all but one of his great novels. Now, our guest is historian and author Lee Jackson. Lee's been uh, delving into the bizarre and surprisingly lengthy history of Dickens' tourism. His uh, new book, Dickensland, the uh, curious history of Dickens' London. And uh, Lee has uh, followed the Dickens buffs who were obsessed with tracking down locations from the likes of Great Expectations and Bleak House and the booming tourist industry that grew from this. And I'm delighted that Lee's on the blower from that magic lantern metropolis. Welcome to our little wireless program, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. Tell me, uh, how famous was he in his lifetime? He was probably the only author that was within a bull's roar would have been Victor Hugo. Yeah, I mean, I think Dickens achieved global superstardom, really. You know, he was was one of those first truly internationally famous people. And, of course, he... He comes. It comes to fame at the start of photography as a sort of popular medium. You know, if you look at sort of the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, people would buy these little uh, cards with famous figures' faces on them. You know, and just collect sets of them. And so Dickens was in people's homes. They were reading him. He was talking to them in his in his magazines, Household Words, and all the year round. Uh, he was visually, you know, instantly recognisable. We we think now of that of that great beard that he had, you know, and those piercing eyes. People knew that image. And, of course, at the end of his career, he's doing these public reading tours, uh, both in the UK and in the United States. So he's actually, you know, out there promoting himself and his books. So he's immensely famous. Um, and I try and think of sort of a, a comparable figure um, for when he died, he dies, as you know, in 1870. And I think the nearest thing I can think in recent times, maybe, is uh, David Bowie dying. You know, it has like a worldwide shock. Uh, people, have you heard, you know, he's dead. And it was exactly the same uh, with Charles Dickens. I didn't realise that uh, people would weep and faint and cheer at the readings. They got that emotionally involved. Yeah, I mean, he was a great... He, you know, it's, it's, we perhaps debate how great an actor he was, but he was, he was great at conveying, you know, the sort of force and intensity of emotion. Certainly, people got very excited by his readings, and of course, the famous one was Sykes and Nancy, where he would portray the murderer and the victim himself, um, switching between the two. And it's, you know, it's an intensely melodramatic idea. And he worried about whether it would work and, or whether would people think it was too horrible or too crass. But it was the absolute sort of triumph of these public readings. And famously, perhaps one of the things that killed him, he, he writes a letter 
um, saying to a correspondent, uh, jokingly, um, I'm being murdered by Bill Sykes nightly because he's playing the part of Nancy as well, right? But it did literally kill him, you know, the effort he put into these and the readings, he would come off the stage and he had to be helped off stage and had a personal attendant who would uh, dose him up with brandy to get him on for the final show, you know? So, yeah, he put so much effort and force into it and people remember him having this sort of hypnotic effect. Um, so, yeah, very much people were obsessed by the readings and this was sort of the final... This was sort of the final sort of capping thing on on his fame, really, and it kept him very much in the public eye. Well, there are two other things that I want to raise briefly, and that is that Queen Victoria was a fan, and, of course, he finishes up in Poet's Corner. Yes, I mean, Queen Victoria was a fan. Um, he puts on a, a play in, in the 1850s, which she attends. You know, he, he, she's very much a fan of his work. And, you know, every, everyone, by the end of his career, um, is a fan of his work. He himself, of course didn't want to be buried in Poets' Corner. Um, he wanted a quieter burial in a churchyard in Rochester, nearer to where the home at Gads Hill, where he spent the final sort of decade or so of his life. Um, but there were various sort of arrangements gone through with his son, Charlie, and I think the Dean of Westminster Abbey and John Forster, his biographer. And ultimately they sort of finagled it that he ended up in Westminster Abbey rather against his wishes. It was at least um, a private funeral, so it was just a funeral for friends and family. But then after the funeral was finished, it was sort of thrown open to the public. And there were, you know, days of people coming along, laying wreaths, um, you know, and the tomb was soon, soon swamped by flowers. So, yeah, this immense public outpouring of grief upon his death. Now, let's talk about the, uh, the beginning of Dickens' tourism. You tell a story about Louisa May Alcott, uh, describing a Dickens pilgrimage. Yes, I mean, I, had, I hadn't realised just that Alka was just an amazing, amazing Dickens fan. She she loved his work. Um, you know, it's, it's in Little Women as well, which is very kind of much a description of her life, essentially. Uh, she loved his work. She had a... She created her own uh, Dickens club with her sisters where they took on the names of characters. Uh, she dramatised it. She did theater, little theatre productions of it. She could quote... Um, vast swathes of Dickens by heart, allegedly. Uh, she was often prone to say, uh, Barkis is willing, rather simply yes. Um, so a famous Dickens catchphrase from David Copperfield. And, and she loved all things Dickens. So when she had the chance to go to Europe uh, in 1866, I think she was like um, a sort of help or nursemaid to a family friend initially. Uh, but they did sort of the typical sort of grand tour of Europe. But she went to London twice um, at the start and the end of that trip. And she had various friends and contacts in London. And she insisted being taken on a tour of uh, Dickens' London. So from places mentioned in the books to uh, Furnival's Inn, where Dickens uh, had begun writing the Pickwick papers as a young man, this sort of little rented rooms he had. And she insisted being show around those places. And actually, I've looked and looked, and she's the first Dickens tourist and certainly <laughs> Dickens topographer, so the person writing up this stuff for other people to sort of, that I found, and that's in 1866, so just just towards the end of Dickens's life. And it's interesting that she's um, an author, a fellow author, so she's thinking about sort of places and what that means to people. And I think also it's very interesting she's an American because actually American tourists have always been the most interested in Dickensian places. It's interesting that she was also an acute theatre critic. She wasn't too impressed with the way he appeared on stage. Yes, well, she saw Dickens on stage giving these public readings um, of his work. 
uh, twice, I think, once in London and then once when he toured uh, the States a couple of years later. And she she loves the readings, but she describes him as this <clears throat> she describes him as this dandy coming on stage, this aging dandy with slicked, greased back hair and multiple <laughs> watch chains hanging from his colourful waistcoat. And she she writes, "Why oh why must he do this?" Yeah. And Dickens was famously uh, rather preening about his appearance. He loved his waistcoats and, <laughs> and his little bits of jewellery. So I think she had him bang on there. Lee, did uh, Charles scout out real locations for his books? Yes, I think he definitely did. We know he spent a lot of time wandering around London. When when he dies in 1870, I think it's um, I think it's Wilkie Collins who says that you know you could be walking in any corner of London and suddenly stumble upon Charles Dickens, which, which is a great image, of course. And he, in one of his letters, he he writes to John Forster, his his friend and biographer. Um, saying that he's been out in uh, Bevis Marks, which is a, a sort of old ancient area of the city of London, uh, looking for a house for Samson Brass. Now, Samson Brass is a character in the old curiosity shop. So you imagine him going out like, a, you know, a film scout, like a location scout, looking for suitable places that he can fit these characters to. And he, he, there's, there's that strong link in Dickens between location and character, isn't isn't there? You know, we can't, we can't think of uh, Miss Havisham without Satis House, that ancient building that surrounds her, you know. Uh, we think about the Pegatis and their boathouse on uh, Yarmouth. Places and buildings and people are all sort of inextricably linked in Dickens' imagination. So it makes it makes perfect sense that he would walk around London trying to sort of match up the characters to suitable houses. My guest is uh, Lee Jackson, author of Dickensland, The Curious History of Dickens' London. Now, when we use the term Dickensian, we tend to think of grinding poverty. And, of course, that was very familiar to him from childhood. Yes, I mean, you know... Let's not overly exaggerate, you know, the sheer poverty of, say, you know, uh, a docker's family who couldn't get any work for, you know, weeks on end. He didn't know that, but he lived on the edge. Um, you know, his his father uh, had been pensioned, was pensioned out from the Navy pay office, which was like the body who, you know, ensured sailors were paid um, in the early 1820s. And uh, famously, you know, he gets into debt and ends up in the Marshall Sea, the, the debtor's prison. So Dickens goes from just being over the borderline, a sort of respectable and you know, lower middle class into his family being in jail. And he has to go and see them every day and, and see the people in there. So there's that stark contrast. And it's just sort of tip, it's just on the edge. It's this sort of hinterland, what Dickens calls um, shabby genteel. That's what his family is. They're not quite middle class, but they're not quite working class either. So it's in that sort of grey area that he begins to explore um, the darker side of London. And of course, yes, famously also, he was put to work in uh, a blacking factory um, at Hungerford Stairs and then Chandos Place in Common Garden, um, which was, you know, he considered this incredibly demeaning for, he, he hoped to be, you know, a middle class gentleman ultimately, and, and that's what he turned himself into. So to be doing this dirty work was terrible. But what was interesting, of course, that those places were very near the sort of dense, highly populated slums of central London. And, you know, in his lunch hour, he would pop out and he'd also explore that for himself. So he always had that curiosity, I think, about poverty and the dark side of London as well. He was a, a sort of flaneur extraordinaire. He'd walk 20 miles a day sometimes. Yes, I mean, you know, he, he, he endless, endless, relentless walking, pacing uh, the city and, you know, footsteps and walking and the sound of footsteps uh, are in his books. There's 
there's one scene where he writes about how horrible it would be to be stuck in a room where you can't see what's happening outside but you just hear people constantly walking and walking past because he's a very mobile person you know he always he has this immense energy and has to be always on the move and, and frankly often wore people out you know, with his sheer enthusiasm and vigor um so walking means a lot to dickens i think and that again ties in um you know with this idea of looking around london seeing everything going places in his magic lantern now would tourists uh, pouring into london in the late 19th century in search of uh, dickens land would they have visited authentic locations or was there a bit of fakery it, it's a bit of all i mean it's a bit of sort of the actual places that dickens definitely based his work on certainly that there is some of that um you know you think of places both in his books and in his life so like the famously the the marshall sea jail where his father was imprisoned people would go and look at the remains of that you know and that was a very genuine sort of dickensian site then you get perhaps places that are slightly more wishful thinking so i'm thinking maybe like the the george inn in in the borough which is a certainly was an old coaching inn but has never really had much to do with dickens himself or his books but kind of rebranded itself as a Dickensian Inn in, in the late 19th century to ensure that it got that sort of share of Dickens tourism. And then the one that's an absolute invention, um, ironically enough, or perhaps with good reason, uh, was the so-called Old Curiosity Shop. Um, the Old Curiosity Shop's in, in Portsmouth Street, just off Lincoln's Inn Fields in sort of Holborn, central London. And it's this kind of Tudor, crumbling sort of Tudor cottage with a sloping roof and the and the floors just below the pavement because it's so old and it has these sort of overhanging uh, first floor level, you know, like a medieval building. And it, in the 1880s, the owner has this bright idea. This is a period where basically anyone who owns an antique shop in London uh, starts calling it the old curiosity shop because, every, you know, it's a brand. But he thinks, right, I'm going to actually paint the words the old curiosity shop <laughs> on the front. And then his successor paints underneath. Once people start asking about that, paints immortalized by charles dickens and it's just having that legend on the front of the shop on the facade that makes it a dickensian tourist attraction people want to believe in it and people have kind of forgotten about it now but it was so famous in its day it was equivalent to you know you had to go and see it, it was like the tower of london or buckingham palace and in the 1930s it was even reproduced at world expos in the states so in like the chicago uh the chicago expo in 1933 there was a sort of English heritage zone and you know you had a replica of part of the Tower of London um you had uh you know Shakespeare's birthplace and you had the old curiosity shop because it was that famous it's one of those key sites in London it's kind of died off now um it's still there you can still go and see it uh, but it's not really on the tourist trail anymore there are enough of those blue parks referring to Dickens for a full dinner service but there's a a shonky one isn't there on London Bridge there's, there's a very yeah well frankly wrong one Let, let's let's be honest i guess um on london bridge on the steps going down from the bridge and it says this is john rennie's london this is what remains of john rennie's london bridge built in 1831 which is true the steps belong to then um and it says the the site where nancy uh, was murdered in the novel oliver twist by charles dickens and the only problem with that is that these are not the steps that appear in the novel of Charles Dickens. And if you read the novel, 
Nancy isn't murdered on the steps in the novel of, by Charles Dickens. Now, of course, where she is murdered by the steps is in the musical Oliver, which we all know and love, right, from the 1960s. And it's interesting, I think, that that sort of memory of Oliver Twist has been sort of warped into this heritage plaque now. So, you know, this this suddenly is the place where Nancy is, mur- is murdered. It would have made no sense to the Victorian tourists who came looking for London Bridge steps. They <laughs> no. were looking for steps going down to the river, which are the ones described in the books. They've long gone. They were sort of subsumed in the 1960s when the new bridge, uh, the new modernist or brutalist bridge was built. Um, so it would have made no sense to them. But we, I think, having ahead the novel, maybe, but we also have the film and so many adaptations and so on and Oliver Twist is a really interesting book isn't it because it's one of those things where we all know the story and if we haven't read the novel so I sort of <laughs> I, I sort of come around to sort of ask myself well if it says Nancy was murdered on on the steps it's sort of right because I bet if you were to ask you know 100 people <laughs> nine out of ten would agree with you right now much of Dickensian London would have been uh, well demolished in his own lifetime let us remember that uh, some that somewhere it says that uh, the Victorians demolished more of Wren's churches than were destroyed in the Blitz. So are there enough authentic bits of dis- of Dickens land left? It's That's a really hard question. I guess it depends on the level of detail you want to find and what you're interested in. So if you're looking for like small fragments uh, that we mentioned, the Marshalsea Prison, the prison wall, one stretch of the wall, is still there with various plaques about Charles Dickens. So, so you're seeing just this very last sort of physical remnant there. Um, there are certainly, he writes a lot about um, churches in London and the city of London's, you know, the ancient business district with its old churches. And famously, there's a there's a great little sketch he writes talking about St. Ghastly Grimm which is a church in the city of London, with, which at the time is decayed. Um, it's not, you know, people aren't using it. It's falling into disuse. And it has on the gate um, two stone skulls, you know, carved into the gateway. And you can still go and see those skulls. That's St. Olaf's Church in Hart Street, um, not far from the Tower of London. And you can still get a feel for what exactly what Dickens was talking about there. It's a small place. It's not even in the novels, but it's interesting. I guess on a sort of broader scale, um, you could look into the inns of court, you know, these ancient sort of lawyers' colleges or housing for lawyers that go back centuries. And Dickens was fascinated, you know, by Lincoln's Inn, Gray's Inn, the Temple. They appear in his books, you know, multiple books. And they still very much have that atmosphere. They still have the gaslights. They still have these sort of Georgian, early Victorian terraces of, of houses. And of course, you still see them on many a TV and film adaptation actually standing in for the rest of London because they are so sort of quaint. And Dickens, that's what Dickens liked about this sort of kind of a, like a preserved little little nook of the of the metropolis that hadn't changed. And I suppose the big one to aim for, if, if you're looking for places, is the Dickens Museum in um, in Doughty Street in Bloomsbury. In fact, that whole street and that whole area is actually very much looks like exactly as when Dickens moved there in the 1830s. Um, you know, and it's a coincidence of various landlords and various things that did or didn't happen to do with demolition and so on. And if you walk in that, around those streets, you are walking around the streets of George and London. Good on you, Lee. Thanks for that. I've been talking to uh, Lee Jackson, a British historian and author of Dickensland, the uh, curious history of Dick- Dickens' London. Uh, His uh, book is due out in Australia in October from uh, Yale University Press. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go 
Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.